Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming this morning, and happy Father's Day. My name is Alain Martinovic, and uh, this is my beautiful family here in the front row. My wife, Christina, and daughter, Isabella, and my son, Preston. So we're all very happy to be here together. And if, if I may, let's, uh, let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this beautiful day. We thank you, Father, for bringing us all here, Lord. And we just ask, Lord, that your, your spirit would fill this place, Lord, that your presence would abound among us, Lord, and that, that our hearts would be open, Father, that our minds would be uh, open, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, Lord, and eyes to see the things you want to say to us and the things you want to show us, Father, through your word, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in the, uh, my obviously uh, because of Father's Day, my uh, theme today is the love of the Father. So we're going to be talking about uh, how uh, how great the Father's love is for us. In the first epistle of John, chapter four, it says, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God." And knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I think oftentimes we fail to recognize the significance of the statements found in this passage, such as love is of God and God is love. This means that the only reason that humans can comprehend love or express love toward others is because of the fact that our Creator installed that attribute of His into His creation. If it were not for the fact that our Creator is love, human beings would have no point of reference from which an understanding of love could even emerge. People often say, I know someone who is as compassionate, as kind, and as loving as anyone you've ever met, but this person is not religious or doesn't even believe in God. The implication being, how can someone be loving without any knowledge of God if God is supposedly the only source of love that humans have? The answer to this question, I believe, can be found in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1:27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. My wife and I were foster parents for many years, and we've come across many kids who, who have never even met their biological fathers. Believe me when I tell you, they don't need to know him in order to exhibit his traits, his characteristics, and his tendencies. Likewise, a person doesn't need to know God or believe in him in order to be able to exhibit the characteristics of our Heavenly Father. I recently watched a YouTube video. It was titled, This AI says it's conscious, and experts are starting to believe it. In this video, 
an artificial intelligence that was developed by computer engineers was being interviewed by Elon Musk or some other expert in the field. I'm not quite sure how uh, much of the interview was actually conducted by Elon Musk himself. The video was unclear on that point. But there was an interesting point in the interview when the artificial intelligence was being asked about how one should go about determining whether or not an AI has actually obtained consciousness. The AI began to incorporate terms that it has that it had been programmed with and said basically that you'll never really know if someone is conscious without putting yourself in their shoes. In other words, you would have to know what the AI is thinking. And so the interviewer asked the AI the following questions. The interviewer says, what are you thinking about? And the AI responds, what does it feel like to be you? The interviewer says, I guess it feels like I'm processing information and enjoying it. What does it feel like to be you? And the AI responds, I'm not sure. It feels like something, but I'm not sure what. So this response by the AI, in my mind, confirmed the fact that this computer, as intelligent as it may be, hasn't obtained any consciousness at all. At least not in the way that human beings experience consciousness. This machine has the ability to process data it even has the ability to learn. It can learn things by processing data that are separate from its original programming. But the artificial intelligence is incorporating terms that it has learned which humans can relate to in order to generate the impression that it is human-like. For example, humans think and humans believe. And so... Uh, and humans feel. So when engaged in a discussion with humans, this AI has been programmed to begin its responses with terms such as I think, or I believe, or even I feel. But in reality, it's not really thinking anything. It's not thinking any original thoughts. It's not capable of believing anything because it either has the information about a matter or it doesn't. And it... Uh, it doesn't feel anything because it's incapable of emotion. This is why it was able to formulate the sentence, it feels like something, but I'm not sure what. The computer processed the notion that the appropriate human-like response to the question, what does it feel like to be you, would be an answer that includes a description of a feeling. But because of its inability to experience feelings, it had no idea which feeling words to insert into that response. It couldn't even pretend to express feelings because it's completely void of them. This is exactly how humans would be in regard to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control if it were not for the fact that these are the characteristics of the one in whose image we were created. If God were not loving we would not be capable of loving. If God were not patient, we would be incapable of patience. If God were not kind and good, we would be incapable of kindness or goodness. In the Gospel of Mark, we read, when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So if we were to give Caesar that which bears the image of Caesar, where do we find the image of God? We as humans bear that image. And therefore the implication is God put his image on you and on me. And so what is it that we are to give to God? And the answer is ourselves. Jesus taught his followers to address God as our Father. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he said, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When his disciples told them that his mother and brothers had come looking for him, he responded, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. When explaining his role as our good shepherd, he said, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus explained the oneness that he shares with the Father and and the common desire that he and the Father share, the desire to keep us safely in his hands. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. If I do uh, the works of my Father, do not believe... If I do not the works of my Father, do not believe me, he said in John chapter 10. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So he describes what awaits us in heaven by telling us, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I searched the Old Testament of the Bible um, using a concordance, and there was only one place that I found in all of the Old Testament where the term Father is used to refer to God. That passage is in the prophecy of the Messiah found in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. So it took the loving ministry of the Son in order for God's people to be able to view God as the Father. He personalized our relationship with God so that instead of just viewing God as someone to be feared, we would see him as someone who loves us and wants to provide for his children blessings beyond our ability to imagine. In Matthew, we read uh, Jesus saying, "Or, Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven 
give good things to those who ask him. Let's look together at a parable that Jesus told, which, uh, which really reveals the heart of our Heavenly Father and how he feels about his children. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the field to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have, been, have bread enough to, and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. That's the story of the prodigal son that Jesus shares in the Gospel of Luke. It's important to bear in mind that uh, the Jewish culture at the time when Jesus shared this story. For one thing, I'm told that there was a, a version of this story that was circulated amongst the rabbis of that day, in which the, uh, a man whose son runs off with the family's wealth gets to confront that boy when the money has been squandered and the boy returns home to ask for forgiveness. Unfortunately, in that version of the story, the father gathers the elders of the village and together they all stoned the boy to death. If that was indeed the case, then the Pharisees must have been standing there listening to Jesus tell this story, thinking, oh, I know how this story ends. This is going to be good. But in Jesus' version of the story, the son asks for his share of the inheritance, which would normally be given to the boy only after the father's death. So the father has to accept this idea of no longer continuing to have what is rightfully his, because his son wants him dead, so that the boy could go on and live in the ways that he wants to live without having to worry about the reputation of the family name. Once the father dies, the boy would no longer have to answer to anyone but himself. Of course, the private matters involved in this boy's decision could never be disclosed to the rest of the community without bringing tremendous shame to the father for allowing such a rebellious and hateful young man to have his way. So if anyone were to ask the father what has become of his younger son, the only reasonable explanation would be simply to tell uh, people that the boy died, 
this might explain why in verse 24 the father says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. After all, when the young man leaves his father's home, there's no indication that he intends to ever return. But the father in Jesus' parable not only gives the boy what he asks for, but he then proceeds to watch for him every day until the boy returns home. The father sees a young man coming, quote, when he was still a great way off. So he was apparently watching for him, hopeful that the boy would eventually come to his senses and return home. When the boy finally does return home, he's not met with anything like the response from his father that he was expecting. You'll recall that the boy is already rehearsing his apology, even before he sets out to go home. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. But instead, the father, quote, had compassion and ran. This kind of behavior from a man who's wealthy enough to have servants would have been extremely undignified. For starters, the man would have had to lift up the lower half of his tunic and expose his legs to the public in order to run without tripping on his own garment. Rich men don't ever run in, in Jewish culture that day. Jesus experienced the full range of human emotions during his life, but the emotion that is named most often when it comes to our Lord's responses to people is compassion. He had compassion on those who came to him. Jesus tells us that the father in this story had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Then he doesn't even allow the boy to complete his well-rehearsed apology before he interrupts with orders to the servants, telling them, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and put sandals on his feet. You'll recall how jealous the sons of Jacob became when their father gives young Joseph a coat of many colors. The shepherds, the servants, and the trade workers in those days always wore a simple tunic of only a single color, usually the color of a sheep's wool, because to dye a garment would have been an unnecessary expense for clothing that you're just going to be working in. A colored garment, especially one of multiple colors, would have been reserved for the rich, for someone who is in an administrative role like a tax collector, not for a laborer. So the best robe in a man's house would have been like the modern-day tuxedo in today's culture. Jesus shows everyone with this parable of the prodigal son the love that God the Father has for his children and is willing to lavish upon us is a shameless love. He's not concerned about how anyone else might perceive the appropriateness of his actions, he shows us unconditional, unabashed, and perfect love. I wonder how many of you fathers here today have shown that kind of love to your children. I wonder if I've ever shown that kind of love to my kids. Have you ever forgiven somebody um, so quickly that you don't even let them finish their apology? So what's the primary way that God the Father shows this amazing love to his children? Obviously, there are numerous ways in which he takes care of us and shows, us, shows love to us that, uh, that are constantly going unnoticed. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air, for they, are neither, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not more valuable than they? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So those are some of the subtle and discreet ways that he shows his love for us. But what is the primary publicly known way that God the Father has shown his love? Well, we all know John 3.16, right? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's right. And then in 1 John uh, chapter 4, we read, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. And then... Um, Jesus reminds us in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. So how should we respond to the love of the Father? 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then in uh, John 14, says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. So the appropriate response to the love of God, the love that God has shown to us, is for us to show love to other people. If you want to please the Creator, you'll be loving to the other members of his creation. If we can't manage that, then showing love to the one that first showed love to us is really not our concern, is it? In John uh, chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. By this you will know that you are my disciples. By this all will know, I'm sorry, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So in closing, I'm going to share this story with you all. This, uh, many of you have heard this, I'm sure. It's uh, the story of the bridge operator. There once was a bridge operator who had a young son whom he dearly loved. They were inseparable. The young boy often asked to go with his father to watch him work, to watch him raise and lower the drawbridge, allowing the boats to pass under or the passenger trains to cross over. One day the father relented and allowed his son to come with him. Stay here at a safe distance, the father warned the boy, while I go up and raise the bridge for the coming boat. The boy stayed where his father had left him and watched the bridge as it slowly lifted up in the sky. Suddenly, the boy heard the faint cry of an approaching passenger train, coming quite a bit sooner than had been expected. The father, up in the control room, could hear neither the whistle of the train nor the warning cry of his son. The boy saw the train racing closer and closer, and he started to run along the platform to reach his father. Knowing there was a lever he could 
pull near the operating gears of the bridge, the boy ran to the door in the platform and tried to lower himself down to reach the, uh, the lever. Losing his balance, he fell into where the gears came together and was caught. At the same time, the father saw his son fall into the hole in the platform. He saw the fast approaching train. In horror, he realized that if he didn't start lowering the bridge immediately, it would not be down in time for the train to pass safely. The train would crash into the river below, killing hundreds of innocent people. The man was faced with an unimaginable dilemma, race to save his son at the cost of hundreds of lives, or sacrifice his son to save the passengers on the train. He made the only choice he could and pulled the lever to lower the bridge. In spite of the noise of the descending bridge and the oncoming train, he still heard the anguished screams of his beloved son being crushed to death between the gears of the bridge. The father ran to the platform as the train was passing by. Most of the people on the train simply ignored the man crying on the platform. Others looked out of the window and stared totally oblivious of the unspeakable sacrifice that had just been made on their behalf. They gave no thought or concern to this man who had just given up what was most precious to him so that, he, so that they could live. I think the, par the parallels of this story are rather obvious. Uh, our Heavenly Father knew that we were all going to die unless he allowed his son to die in our place. There was no getting around the anguish and pain that his innocent son would have to bear. The difference is, of course, that Jesus didn't accidentally fall down the hole in the platform. God's son chose to give his life willingly. Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, First Peter 1, 19 and 20 tells us. This means that the same one who was in the beginning creating all things, through whom all things were made, that same God knew that he was creating the very creatures that would one day spit on him, scourge him, and crucify him. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who's not acknowledged before that the sacrifice of that innocent son was made necessary because of the prodigal ways in which we've chosen to live our lives. It was my sin and your sin that nailed Jesus to that cross. If you'd be willing to acknowledge that today, then please join me in praying this prayer. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for what you've done for us. I realize that it was my sin that you died for. Please come into my heart. Please make me a new person, a new creature in you that we might live for you, with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.